Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping this week on Thursday, September 22nd at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined via video conference by Joanne Cannon of the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and Politico. Hi, everybody. Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Good morning. And from St. Louis, my KHN colleague, Lauren Weber. Hello, hello. Lots of news this week, so we will jump right in. And we will not discuss NyQuil chicken. Google it if you don't know what it is, or better, don't even bother. Thank you. Thank you, Joanne. (laughs) So it appears that the pandemic is over, or at least it is, according to President Biden in his 60 Minutes interview last Sunday. But even though the president tried to contextualize his remarks to suggest that COVID isn't quite over, it's still a problem, as he called it. That's not the way his remarks were taken. Among other things, this complicates the administration's efforts to get Congress to provide more funding for COVID testing treatments and vaccines. And it has some Republicans demanding an immediate end to the public health emergency emergency that's keeping millions of people around the country on Medicaid, among other things. How much of a flub was this, or was it an actual effort by the president to start the process of winding down our perception of COVID and what it's doing to our society? Well, I don't know if it was anything intentional on his part. It felt like a flub in the sense that the administration is trying to still get more than $20 billion from Congress for help with COVID. I think it reflects sort of a an inability to talk about where we are right now. Like, I know a lot of people want to say it's over. And the president said, look, nobody's wearing masks at this auto show. But there is this maybe, you know, we're not seeing hospitals overflowing, but there are still three to 400 people a day dying. That's, that's a huge number um, from COVID. And I think there's there's no way to talk about it without saying either it's that bad or it's over. And there's there's no middle ground of you know, we got used to something really, really bad. And now it's just bad. <laughs> yeah, that, that's actually as good a description as I've heard, Lauren. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to say, too, I think this is just very emblematic of the inability of officials to communicate properly about the gray of COVID for almost the entirety of this pandemic. It's either black or white. It's over. Or it's happening. And the reality is, is as you pointed out, 300 to 400 people dying a day is a massive amount of people. But the way that crisis communications in this country appears to work around COVID has been really flawed. And I think that the inability to kind of speak to that gray really becomes a problem for the president when you go and ask for money from Congress and so on. And we'll see how that continues to play out over the next couple of weeks. I mean, Biden has always been, this is not the first time he's been called a shoot from the lip politician. And he's, <laughs> whether he was trying to make a subtle point that subtlety is not his strong point, or whether he just blurted something out very inartful, you know, we none of us are in his head. But, you know, like my colleagues have said here, the way to talk about it is the COVID pandemic is much less severe. We hope the worst is over. We have to still take steps to keep making progress and to keep, you know, making it manageable. And he didn't say anything remotely like that, even if he might have thought he did. So there are days it's still almost 500 dead. I mean, it's a lot of people dying every single day. There are a lot of people who, because of health issues, cannot resume a normal life. Many people can resume 
a modified version of normal life. Right now, you've just launched these new boost, the bivalent boosters. People don't understand what the word bivalent means. People are distrustful. Well, why should it work against this variant if it didn't work then that variant? I've already had three. How do I know it lasts a year? I mean, there's, it couldn't have come really at a worse time as we want uptake of these boosters. And we want to be able to say, we can't say they last a year because we don't know they last a year. We can say we have reason to believe they, that we may be entering the era where you can just do it once a year like you do your flu and you know we'll all be safer. But there's unknowns. So yeah, in terms of both either the public response to boosters or the congressional response to budgetary needs, it was not useful. <laughs> And my, my pet peeve on the communication tier is that now people are going out and getting their COVID booster and their flu shot at the same time. And it's early to get your flu shot. And if we're going to have a bad flu season, you would like your flu shot to last not through February, but through April or May, which I personally am getting my flu shot in October, which is when I always get it. So that, that's my, it's my little public health service. But they also want, they'd rather get your flu shot than not get your flu shot. Than not and get it yeah, at all. Right. I get that. Yeah. But you can go get your COVID vaccine now and flu shot in a month. Probably fewer side effects, too. All right. We will see how this progresses, both in terms of we're getting towards the end of the, the fiscal year, so Congress is going to have to put up or shut up or kick the can down the road in terms of money. I mean, we just haven't come up with the national equivalent of an adult lollipop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we need. So I wanted to actually spend some time this week talking about the business of healthcare because we haven't in a while and we've had a lot of news that sort of stacked up. So I want to start with sort of good news and bad news on the healthcare inflation front. As we have talked about many, many times here on the podcast, the passage in August of the Inflation Reduction Act means that most premiums won't go up for people who buy their insurance through the Affordable Care Act. But the same can't be said for people with employer coverage because like everything else, medical care is getting more expensive. And while employers don't want to raise costs for workers while we're having a labor shortage, at some point they're going to have no choice. So what is the return of medical inflation, which we haven't really had in a big way for, you know, as long as we haven't had high interest rates, you know, mean both politically and substantively for people? Well, I think what I've read about it is that what makes sense is typically these contracts that employers might make with insurers or anybody in the healthcare system that they last a few years. And so, you know, they were safe for a little bit, but these things are going to start expiring and needing to be renewed. It's also the contract between the insurers and the providers. Exactly. That, that yeah. Anybody multiple in years. the system. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Medical costs are a lagging indicator, as they yeah, like to yeah, say. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, I think. And employer-sponsored health insurance is not something that gets the same attention as anything that the government is more involved in, I guess. The interesting thing, and I, and I don't understand this entirely, because I've, I've been reading about it, and I've been meaning to write about it, and haven't had a chance yet. We're in an era of very historically high inflation, the highest in decades. All of us go to stores, and all of us see the prices. The healthcare components are actually lower than inflation. And that's unusual. Usually healthcare is growing faster than the rest of the economy. Right now, drug prices, hospital prices, medical prices, their monthly reports have been lower than the rest of inflation. And yet the insurance contracts are coming in as quite high. So I don't entirely understand that yet. Is that because they can? <laughs> is that because there are all these 
you know, messed up things in the healthcare system accumulating because of COVID and the related impact and that it's about to hit? Is it because worker shortages um, and wages are going up? I mean, I don't entirely understand. I I think uh, some of it, though, there was no medical care other than COVID given for like a year and a half. I mean, people just didn't go to the doctor. Yeah, but it has picked up again. And then I would say then people started going again. So there's been this huge induced demand of people who missed all their cancer screenings and their checkups and their, you know, dental work and all the stuff that they were going to have done, um, but didn't because they didn't want to go to a healthcare facility during COVID. So right. you've got these kind of weird ebbs and flows. And they're probably um, also anticipating the government is going to stop picking up some of the costs that they have had a chance to unpack it. I mean, I've noticed this difference between relatively low inflation for healthcare services and a upcoming big insurance spike. I mean, I'm seeing it both in the national figures and also sort of what I'm expecting at my, my own job. There's connections I don't entirely understand yet. Yeah, I think we're waiting for health economists to explain all of this stuff. I think they're trying to sort it out, too. So there's lots of things that are pushing medical spending up. But one is very clearly the increasing participation in the health sector by private equity. In other words, people getting into healthcare primarily for the profits that it can provide. Lauren, you have a story just this week about yet another specialty that's caught the eye of private equity. Tell us about it. I love to see a pun from you, Julia. Yes, I wrote a story about the investment of private equity into the eye care space. And it's pretty vast. And over a decade, we went from about a handful of ophthalmologists being owned or invested in by private equity to now 8%. And the deal is, is there's a lucrative market in the aging US workforce. I mean, A lot of people are getting older. A lot of people need some eye help. And the deal with eye surgery and cataract surgery is that it's kind of like buying a ticket on an airplane. You can upgrade to first class with some little benefits. You can do laser instead of manual. You elect to have astigmatism fixes done while you do your cataracts. And a lot of these costs are out of pocket. So they're pretty lucrative. And so private equity sees that opportunity and is pouring literal billions into the space. And New JAMA research shows that as after a private equity investment, costs go up. Costs have gone up for ophthalmologists, gastroenterologists, and so on. And so it basically, we see kind of across the country this coming consolidation that's already happening. And a couple of experts warned to me, they're concerned that when does the game end? I mean, how many times can you get 20% increased profit out of these practices? And then what happens after that? The private equity is like everywhere. And it's growing, if not by the day, then by the week. I mean, remember that when many of us became first became aware of private record equity's increasing role was the whole surprise billing mess. I mean, they had a big role in the transition of how emergency doctors are employed and paid, pathology, traveling nurses, I mean, which is now creating all sorts of other ripples. I mean, these have created economic disruption and extra cost and costs paid by consumers. Laura's pace was really great. The study she she's referring to, we're, we're talking about the business of health today, and that was actually done by a, a program, my colleagues at Hopkins, on a program called the Hopkins Business of Health Initiative, and they've been looking a lot at, at private equity, and, and that was one of their studies. It's dermatology, gastroenterology, and ophthalmology, and those are all things where, like, dermatology is another one, boy, can you add on there. You know, once my mother, this was not private equity, this was a regular doctor went in for a skin screening and they only did one side of her body and they said she had to come back for the other side, you know? 
<laughs> they get two visits. She had something else being done, and they said that was it. They could only do two things, right? It's crazy. But in the early 90s, I think, Joanne, this might even be before you started covering healthcare, when they revamped the way Medicare pays doctors, there was a big concern at the time that Medicare paid people who did things to people more than people still who talked to people. Right. Obviously, they didn't, they addressed it, but they didn't fix it. So basically, doctors who use technology, you know, interventional radiologists, um, ophthalmologists, we're t- it's funny. It's cutting versus talking. Right. We're talking, <laughs> we're talking about all the people I was going to say who are using high tech. Everybody using high tech gets paid way more. And isn't it funny how that's where the private equity is going? Because they were already getting paid more. And now we're just sort of expanding this differential between what doctors who do things to people and compared to what doctors who sometimes cure people by talking to them. Let's not jump ahead for ourselves. Um, because I want to expand this a little bit. Meanwhile, this week, we, I want to talk about health insurers first. Uh, in this this week, in health insurers trying to take over the actual provision of medical care, Humana is expanding its partnership with the private equity firm of Welsh Carson Anderson and Stowe to build and operate primary care clinics for its Medicare Advantage members, of which Humana has many. Not to be outdone, United Healthcare is finally being allowed to proceed to take over a data analytics firm in a merger that the Justice Department unsuccessfully tried to block. Justice Department charged. It would give United unfair access to competitors' payment data. United apparently argued that through its existing analytics firm, Optum, it already basically has that access to competitors' data. I know all this sounds esoteric, but at some point, shouldn't we be getting concerned that healthcare is just going to consist of three or four giant healthcare providers slash payment slash insurance companies? I mean, we're looking at an oligopoly here in healthcare. Yeah, I think that that's definitely a concern when you see all of this going on. And and I think like you know as well, too, when you see Amazon still trying to get its tentacles in healthcare. That's and, next. You know, and, <laughs> you know, there is something to be said, I, I guess, as the consumer for maybe convenience. But when you're talking about insurance companies and the data, the technology they use and, and things like that being monopolized by just one of them, and probably all of us have horror stories of dealing with insurance companies and you wish there was you know better customer service and the ability to to just walk away if you need to or go somewhere else and that doesn't exist and so yeah i think there's definitely a concern that and and the, i think the biden administration has made it clear that they're going to try to go after this but they're not really having any luck at least in recent days given some trump judge appointed judges out there and and things like that yeah, I just want to add to this consolidation all plays off of each other. Like I had experts in my private equity story say that in order to compete, ophthalmologists had to join private equity to compete with hospital systems and insurance giants and so on. And so, you know, you kind of see this domino effect where everyone feels like they're the smallest person in the room. So they either need to get bought up or be in part of, you know, the larger system to be able to compete. And so we're going to continue to see the ramifications of that play out. I thought Lauren's story is really great. And just like, think of yourself as a patient. You're going in, you're going to have somebody perform surgery or procedure on your eye. And they're asking you, do you want me to sort of, you know, hold this thing by myself? Or should I have the laser do it? I mean, what are you going to say? And, and they are under these pressures to, to, I mean, as they're owned by private equity, there's different incentives and expectations and targets and, you know, how their own income is tied in in ways that I don't know, but 
it changes who owns you changes your behavior. So we're always upselling things. And it's happening after sort of a 15 year period when we supposedly the whole healthcare system has been pointed toward, you know, greater value and, and quality rather than quantity. And, and it just seems to be the fashionable flashes afflection point. Yeah. Inflection well, meanwhile, point. As, as Anna hinted, it is not just health insurance companies who are trying to take over the healthcare world. Amazon, as we know, is trying to get into primary care. CVS, which is already heavily into primary care, I'm sure everybody's been to a minute clinic, is extending into home care. And Walgreens is buying into the home care and the specialty pharmacy businesses. In other words, we've got traditional healthcare players and non-traditional healthcare players all trying to consolidate their stakes in healthcare. So maybe we're going to have non-healthcare companies driving the healthcare train. I've been rolling this around in my own head, and I can't decide, you know, I'm, I'm used to listening to futurists predict the future of healthcare. I honestly have no idea where we're headed right now, except for a lot of people wanting to make a lot of money. Well, I think we've seen Amazon try and fail a few times, too. And so it's unclear if this is a space that can really be disrupted. I mean, Haven being kind of the the biggest kind of point that when they tried to partner with uh, J.P. Morgan and Berkshire Hathaway to do, I don't know what they were going to do um, exactly. Fix healthcare. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they, they were, were going to fix, fix healthcare. healthcare. And Atul Gawande went off into the government to head AID. So we never really got a good debriefing on what happened or didn't right. happen at Haven. That's a good point. You know, they've had their own pharmacy, but it's not becoming, you know, what we use Amazon for everything else for. It's It's not really that that much that used as much. And so it's hard to know if it's going to be those companies that can do it. It seems to be that healthcare is just its own beast. And it might not be possible to take whatever Amazon knows really well about business and supply chain and and transfer that over to the healthcare space. Or we'll have little doctors popping out of our, you know, <laughs> coming up with our, you know, our Amazon day delivery. <laughs> Doctor by drone. No, Here's I was fascinated too. Right. <laughs> there, it's interesting if you notice that Walgreens deal had the same Welsh, Carson, Anderson and Stowe private equity company mm-hmm. that um, Humana did at the top of the call. So it's kind of interesting to see the intersections, obviously, of private equity and these massive conglomerates as they continue to gobble up these smaller firms. And I, I also was interested by the move into, as you said, folks that come to your home. You know, it's interesting that CBS wants to invest in people not in their stores, but are they're actually showing up to your doorstep. And I'm curious as we kind of continue to go on if we'll see more and more of that investment, especially in the era of telemedicine and in the middle of the pandemic and as we move forward in the pandemic, like what that will look like. I was just going to say that Joanne was joking, but you know, when I read about the CVS deal getting into home health, I did really think like, well, could you like you get a doctor to come see you or a nurse? Did they pick up your prescription at CVS first? And then like you also need some hair spray or something and then they grab that for you and then they come like is that could that be a reality at some point that's one way to sell things from CVS, I guess. I mean, home health is a good idea that getting care to people's homes, particularly people with limited mobility, inability to drive, live where there's lousy public transportation, all sorts of reasons or infection, you know, I mean, there's all sorts of reasons, you know, when I was really little, we had home calls, you know, and that that stopped. And, and they have been coming back in, in segmented niches kinds of ways. But home care is probably a good thing. 
but in the right circumstances with the right economic incentives. But I don't know that this is going to be the right model. It, it's sort of like we unbundled healthcare and now we're rebundling it with Anna's um, hairspray. <laughs> Yeah, it's like a Netflix. I mean, it's like what all of the cord cutting. I mean, who knows yeah. what's going to happen now? That, that Welsh Carson, and we should point this out, that some of these, you know, private equity firms have a lot of health expertise. Welsh Carson is where Tom Scully went after he left running Medicare and Medicaid. So there's not some of these firms are just getting into it because it's a place to make money. But some of it actually have always worked in this space. I mean, there's always buying everything. I mean, it's just like yes. one more so, thing in the portfolio. So like, okay, I'm going to go buy a cardiology practice and a movie theater, you know, movie theater chain today. Right. I mean, it's that's it, I'm it, saying it, you, it, there it, are it, there are different ones, which is a whole nother discussion that we will get into. All right. Meanwhile, I want to move on to the next segment, which I am calling things we really shouldn't have to pay for. Um, there are two separate studies this week from husband and wife, single payer advocates, David Himmelstein and Steffi Woolhandler. David helmed a study that found nearly 10% of all people with private insurance nonetheless have medical debt, which is not surprisingly more common for people with high deductible health plans, but more surprisingly, also more likely to have medical debt are people with Medicare Advantage plans, which are supposed to pick up the cost that Medicare doesn't. The study's authors theorize that's because Medicare Advantage often doesn't cover out-of-network benefits that its enrollees end up needing, and so they have to go out and pay for things themselves. Uh, Steffi Woolhandler, meanwhile, led a study in the New England Journal of Medicine showing that sexual assault survivors who sought emergency care were charged an average of more than $3,600, despite the fact that they may not be charged for actual evidence gathering by the Federal Violence Against Women Act. Granted, both of these studies come from advocates of single-payer health care, but I have to say I was still pretty surprised, particularly by the finding that Medicare Advantage enrollees were more at risk for medical debt than people with other types of health insurance. And I think, and also that women who have been sexually assaulted and go to the emergency room end up with large bills. Yeah. And Um, remember, there's a movement in this country in many, many states to make it extremely hard for a rape victim to get an abortion in states that are even going to allow it. It does require that you report. It does require that you get treatment. The state laws vary. But first of all, if you're a rape victim, you, you probably should see a doctor. But you also have to jump through additional hoops if you do get pregnant and want an abortion. The fact, I found that story shocking and disturbing, that being a victim of any crime is traumatic. Being a victim of a sexual assault is obviously deeply, deeply traumatic. And then having to go through the criminal justice system, if in fact you do need an abortion, I mean, if you go to the hospital, you you get a plan B and you, you reduce the risk of a, of a pregnancy. I just found that one to be really disturbing and, and even more so given the political context of abortion right now and how rape victims are often treated, which they're subject to questioning and suspicion in a way that other crime victims are not often, not always the case. Things have obviously gotten better over the decades, but they're still not great. And thousands of dollars because you're a crime victim. And we should point out that the way they did the study... A lot of these bills were paid by insurance. If you had insurance, these were, this is what was billed, not necessarily what the individuals paid. But still the idea that, you know, you also wonder, should health insurance be basically footing the bill for victims of sexual assault? Because then 
everybody pays for it. And we all know that, you know, whenever you're billed for anything, you're going to get envelopes in the mail about it. So every time you open that up, I mean, I just can't even imagine. It's just horrifying to hear right. the financial. And, you know, you haven't met your deductible and, you know, <laughs> you have an out-of-network path. You know, there's all this stuff that, I mean, some of the surprising bills deal with that. But it's just sort of like emblematic of just so many things that are wrong right now. So, well, as, we, as we've already said, abortion continues to roil the nation. Last week, West Virginia became the latest state to ban almost all abortions in the state. Meanwhile, in Utah, where the state's trigger ban is actually on hold in the courts, Republican state lawmakers sent cease and desist letters to abortion providers there threatening prosecution anyway, although then they tried to walk back that threat the next day. And in Puerto Rico, which has other problems this week, uh, a new political party has arisen to try to establish restrictions in one of the only U.S. jurisdictions that currently has no limits on abortion. Is the debate moving in one direction or another right now, or are we going to not really know anything for sure until after the midterms? Yeah, I think it's hard to say. I mean, when you said one direction or another, I was, for some reason, I thought states are federal because they, you know, obviously, a couple weeks ago. Last week. That, it was la- last oh, week. Sorry, last week. <laughs> <laughs> Lindsey Graham's um, legislation to ban it at 15 weeks. And I was kind of thinking that way. And I have no idea where where it's going right now. And I think you're right. There's been so much talk that that is bringing a lot of women out to register to vote, um, particularly on the Democratic side. And we've got trying to do the math in my head, six or seven weeks, something like that until the midterms. And, you know, it still seems to be an extremely important issue, which even with inflation and and other things, that's often hard to do for an issue to kind of last that long in the mind of the electorate. Yes, we have such short attention spans. But it's like built and built rather than, I mean, I I thought originally when we talked about it, I mean, I thought it would make a difference in certain states. I mean, I thought it would make a difference in Pennsylvania. I thought it would make a difference in um, states where youth vote might really matter. I thought in, in close, some close races in certain areas that are the few remaining swing district areas. And actually, it's much more potent than we saw. Now, what we, we still don't know is people in their polls, they say, this is my concern. Yes, I, I disagree with the Supreme Court. I mean, the, by, by large margins, we still don't know when someone goes into the poll, like extrapolating the Kansas vote, which was only on abortion, right? We were all surprised by the strength of the pro-abortion rights vote in Kansas. It was it was way bigger than any of expected, even in pretty red counties. But that you were only voting abortion. How does that voter who voted in that referendum vote when there's also dealing with 500 other things, including inflation and crime and other issues of the Republicans. So we, we can't just say, okay, because we've had these polls and these cases votes that we know, but we do know it's a bigger deal in this election than we thought and that it is helping the Democrats and that things are going to be better for the Democrats than they would have been otherwise. But we don't know what that really looks like yet. I mean, they could still lose both the House and the Senate, but not by as much as they might have. Um <laughs> You know, I mean, the Senate is very toss up and there are races where they're suddenly gotten closer, like North Carolina is really, really close now. You know, is the Republicans still favored? Yes. But that race is very, very close. And it's a pro-abortion rights woman running for Senate, a black woman running for Senate. There's a lot of dynamics. And the House is very gerrymandered. So, Lauren, you're you're in the middle of the country where this is really sort of, you know, heating things up. I mean, obviously, Missouri has been trending redder over the last 
several um, beyond beef. Uh, elections. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, I, I think we're pretty deep red at this point, mm-hmm. Julie. I don't know. I, I, I was fascinated by the Utah case that you brought up about the threatening letters by the legislators, because it reminded me a little bit of our attorney general in Missouri has sent quite a few legal letters. But it was interesting coming from legislators and not the attorney general of the state of Utah and the fact that they actually walked it back. I was really surprised. It's a very interesting turn of events because you've seen, you know, usually letters like this that threaten legal action are not uncommon. But to see it from the legislative state itself is is quite fascinating. And I I think, you know, Jan's exactly right. Like when people get into the ballot box, it's not just about abortion. And who the heck knows? I mean, considering what's going on in geopolitics these days, who knows what we're going to be voting on come November? So I think, you know, I do think that in very red states, this this is already, you know, it's a state's issue that's been pretty decided in those states. But then again, we did see what happened in Kansas. So, I mean, we'll see what happens come the next couple of months. I feel like, you know, as somebody, I say this a lot, who's been covering abortion for, you know, like four decades now, I feel like the debate is kind of untethered in the sense that we just don't know where it's going. I mean, it's like, you know, it's a boat bobbing up and down on the waves. And (laughs) we've got currents coming from from all directions and no idea where it's going to land. But we'll obviously. But we know that this is this is issue was here to stay from the right for 50 years. And it is now here to stay from the left for unknown <laughs> decades to come. and at, at least the next six weeks. No, I don't, I don't think this goes away in six weeks. Yeah, and, no, and, I, don't, I don't either. This is, this is a really volatile issue. And the pro-abortion rights people thought they were safe. They, they saw things being eroded. They saw things being weakened over the years quite a bit. I mean, there are places in the country where you couldn't get an abortion before the Dobbs decision. But there are places in the country it's hard to get contraceptions, you know, not contraceptives, it's not just, you know, they're they're reproductive health deserts. But the intensity was on the side of trying to create change, which was the the anti-abortion groups. And now the intensity is on the side trying to create change, which is now the pro-abortion rights groups. So this is not going to stop. It'll ebb and flow, but it's not going to stop. And to put that another way, one of the things that's always been true about the abortion debate is that the losers are the ones who get more motivated, that whoever's playing defense tends to be more motivated. So for years and years and years, it was the you know anti-abortion groups on defense because the status quo was that abortion was legal. And now all of a sudden, this is the shifted 180 degrees, and we will see how it all plays out. All right. Well, that is the news for this week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment where we each recommend a story we read that we think you should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org and in our show notes on your phone or other mobile device. Anna, why don't you go first this week? Mine was in The Guardian by Tom Perkins. It's fury over forever chemicals as U.S. states spread toxic sewage sludge. So I hope no one's eating when I talk about this, but there's sort of this growing movement to take sludge directly from wastewater companies that need to get rid of it and use it as fertilizer on our crops and the things we're eating. And Recycling! Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, it sounds disgusting, and I, I wouldn't know much about it, except that there's these forever chemicals. Um, and that's the PFAS that we might all have been hearing about because we all have them in our bodies. Um, they're in everything pretty much. And the wastewater also has these and then they're being spread on our food. Um, there's just two states, Maine and I'm blanking on the other one, that don't allow its use on the farmland that's already ruined some farmland there. And, and there's other states, which, uh, sorry, Virginia residents um, that are just allowing it as much as people apply for it. So it's an interesting look at a really concerning topic. 
Awesome. <laughs> Joanne. Yeah, I, I found a story from Capital B, um, which is a, a new start, a couple of month old startup in a nonprofit um, that's really covering heightened focus on black America. And Margot Snipe wrote a story called, she's the health reporter, clinicians dismiss black women's pain, the consequences are dire. There is many years of research showing that black people's symptoms are often undertreated. Black people's pain is undertreated, even in situations like appendicitis, kids with appendicitis. And also, you know, you know, I think all of us can testify that women's health care concerns are often not listened to. So you got a double whammy if you're a black woman. Now, you don't want to over-treat, you know, white people's pain has been over-treated. We have an opioid crisis. Um, but I mean, she really makes a real case about the, an anecdote that stuck with me as a woman who was asked to rate her pain on one to 10, which is something we're all asked. And the woman said 35,000 and she wasn't treated. And to the point that she was considering whether she wanted to even stay alive any longer. And it's a systemic part of anything still wrong with American healthcare in general and how black Americans are treated by a system that doesn't trust them and they don't trust the system. Yeah. Yet, yet another example. Lauren? I thought there was a great piece that my colleague Brett Kelman did for KHN about how a Supreme Court ruling from June, which I know is eons ago, um, Ruan versus U.S., really has changed the game for opioid prosecutions against doctors. And he found that after that ruling, which was a unanimous Supreme Court decision that said that prosecutors must not only prove that the prescription for opioids was not medically justified, but that the prescriber knew as much. And by adding that extra layer that they knew and chose, you know, what Brett found by researching court records is that in at least 15 cases across 10 states, it's altered their legal strategies and assumedly will alter legal strategies for years to come and could drastically change how doctors are prosecuted and and how many of them actually are convicted uh, with this kind of heightened legal deal. And so I think it's really fascinating to consider what we're looking at going forward uh, when it comes to, you know, holding folks accountable for the opioid crisis and what it means legally. Yeah, we got all so excited about as well, we should have about Dobbs and about the gun cases at the end of the term that we that a lot of people kind of missed that important opioid case. I think it's going to come back and have some real ramifications down the road. Well, my story is from the Anchorage Daily News by Annie Berman, and it's called Many Alaska Pharmacies Are Understaffed, Leading to Sporadic Hours and Patients Turned Away. And the headline pretty much says it in the largest city in the state. People sometimes can't get their prescriptions because there aren't enough people to fill them. The dean of the University of Alaska's pharmacy program, and I quote from the story here, went from begging employers to attend their annual job fair to charging $500 per booth due to increased demand. Unless you think it's just Alaska, emergency rooms in Canada, yes, a country with national health insurance, have been closing on a rolling basis because they don't have enough nurses. I fear that one of the big fallouts from the pandemic around the world is a burned out healthcare workforce that could leave us all searching for care. I hope I'm wrong, but let's watch that space. Okay, that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our producer, Francis Ying, who makes the weekly magic happen. As always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealthalloneword at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Joanne? At Joanne Kennan. Anna? At Anna Edney. Lauren? At Lauren Weber HP. We will be back in your feed next week. Until then, be healthy. Be healthy.